Well, I'm glad you guys could be here today. And uh, we started a new series last week called Botched. And if you weren't able to be here last week, I hope you at least took some time to go listen to that sermon online. Or if you haven't yet, please go do that. That kind of sets up this whole series that we are in together as a church for the next couple of weeks. But we are trying to answer this very loaded question. And the question is, is failure fatal? And I believe this is one of these questions that more Christians than what we might realize wrestle with. And I believe right here in our church family, this is something that the Lord wants us to wrestle down together. Botched, what does it mean to botch? Well, we defined it this way last week. Botched is this, spoiled by mistakes. And if, and if you've ever wondered about some of this stuff, I'll tell you, you wouldn't be the very first Christian to ask questions like, can I mess up so bad or are my mistakes so severe that I have somehow spoiled my faith? Does God still love me? Can I be of any use to the Lord again? Did I lose my chance of going to heaven? If you've ever wondered that, friends, you're not the first Christian to ever utter these kinds of questions. It's easy to slip into this mentality of like, I really messed up this part of my life and now if I work hard enough, I can like earn my way back into God's good graces. And, but is that really how our Lord is? Is that, is that how God functions? Is that the Lord we read about in the Bible? I'll tell you, it's questions like these that can often plague somebody's walk with Jesus. And I just believe in my heart, I told you this kind of came as an overflow of the Genesis series. This is something that I think that the Lord just wants our church to wrestle down and get a firm understanding and answer to these kinds of questions. I know that when I'm tempted to think this way, it's, it's good for me to go back and read some of these incredible stories in the Bible of people who have absolutely blown it. Raise your hand if you know the Bible's full of stories that have blown it, of people who have blown it. All right, we're good, we all know that. People who have botched up their lives, but also have made this incredible, redemptive comeback. And their stories remind us that our God is a redeemer. Our God is about redemption. Our Lord loves a good comeback story, and it's never been God's intention for you to stay down forever, all right? And this is what these stories encourage me with, and, and, and I think the Lord wants to encourage our church with these as well. Last week, we spent some time with one of the most notorious Bosch moments in all of Scripture, and that's when David had an affair with a married woman, and then he proceeded to cover up the pregnancy that resulted from that affair. And then he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, and David owned it. You remember what he said? I have sinned against the Lord. And man, that was a huge moment in his life, crucial moment. God forgave David, and we've learned from this. There's this truth that comes from that. It's is how we respond to our sin. Well, that is of utmost importance to the Lord, how we respond to it. And David was like, I've sinned against the Lord. How we respond to sin, when we botch, that, that could very well determine whether that is fatal or not. So, so David's botched moment, it is notorious. It is dramatic. It is black and white. It is one of those stories that preachers like me refer to all the time when we're trying to identify sin and forgiveness. But today we're gonna look at a, another example from the scripture as we continue to unpack this question about failure and is it fatal or not and sin. But the example that we're gonna look at today, it's not as well known, it's not nearly as notorious as David's. It does not involve a uh, sexual sin of any nature. It's not that blatant. But it is a story about a man who felt like he had failed God miserably 
felt like he had failed to live up to the expectations that were in front of him. Someone who, whose own fear drove him into a season of doubt and a lack of courage and heavy anxiety, and he actually stepped outside of God's will. Believe it or not, I am actually talking about one of the greatest prophets to ever walk the earth. I'm talking about Elijah. Have you heard of him before? I know many of us have. A great prophet of God who experienced a season in his life that left him feeling like a failure. Felt like that he had boshed it up so bad that he actually wanted to die. That's what the Bible says. And this is a completely different kind of experience than what David had. So Elijah comes onto the biblical scene in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. Do you have your Bibles? Can you go ahead and take those out or find one of the Bibles around you in the seat pockets around you? 1 Kings 17, it's in the Old Testament. First Kings, uh, first, the book of 1 Kings starts off with the death of David, who we looked at last week in his botched moment and forgiveness. And then it deals with the reign of Solomon and then the kings that followed and what happened to the nation of Israel after Solomon. And just really shortly after Solomon dies, the nation of Israel divides. It becomes what we call the divided kingdom. You have the, 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 the northern kingdoms that retained the name Israel and you have the southern kingdom that uh, took on the name of Judah. So you have Israel and Judah. So the Israelites are divided now. And they, in each, each kingdom, the northerners had their own kings. There was a few bright spots in there, but let me just tell you, for the most part, it's all headed in the wrong direction. God's people are not headed in godly ways. Um, most of these kings were completely evil. And this is the environment that Elijah comes onto the scene. You have a divided people of God who really none of them, for the most part, are following after the Lord. And that's, that's Elijah. Now, to give you the fuller context, I gotta tell you about a few people in Elijah's life to help you just kinda, I don't think you can really appreciate where we're gonna land today until you understand the major players in this story. You have Elijah, and Elijah is an Old Testament prophet. Well, let's just, let's just be very clear so we're all on the same page. What is a prophet? Well, in the very simplest of definitions that I could give you, a prophet's job was to deliver a message from God to somebody. That, that's what a prophet did. They were hand chosen by God. And usually when you come across a prophet in the Bible, it starts out something like this. You read these words. The word of the Lord came to fill in the blank. And that's the name of the prophet and God had a job for him. Or the Lord sent fill in the blank, just like last week when the Lord sent Nathan to go confront David. Remember this? This is So he's raised up these prophets. So that, that's what a prophet does. So in the Bible, we have some really well-known prophets, and there's a lot of prophets that are not as well-known, but you might recognize some of these names. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. I'm just listing off some of the more well-known prophets that we learn about in the Bible. I can tell you this, for the most part, a prophet's life was not an easy life. And many of them died doing the very thing that God called them to do. So that's Elijah's job. He's a prophet. He delivers messages for God, and he's one of the best that ever did it. Now, there's two other people I need to tell you about, so this story makes sense, and I can build the context for you. If Elijah is one of the greatest people you're ever going to read about in the Bible, these next two have got to be among the worst. 
In fact, I think they are the worst. And I'm talking about King Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. And you have to say Jezebel with that little bit of girl. You can probably say Jezebel. And I say this every time her name comes up in the Bible. There is a reason today, friends, for why we don't name our little daughters Jezebel today, all right? We don't name our children Jezebel. And there's a good reason you're gonna see why today. But King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, they're the leaders of the northern kingdom of Israel, and man, were they evil. Most notably, they led the nation of Israel, these are God's people, they led them into Baal worship. And Baal was a false god of the Canaanites that many people in that day and age worshiped, and it greatly angered the Lord. Do you remember when God laid out the the Ten Commandments? Do you remember the first two? You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first one, it's biggie. The second one is you shall have no other, you shall not make for an image of yourself and bow down and worship him. And the very first two of the 10 have to do with having other gods in, in front of the Lord. And, and this is exactly what, what they were, were doing. They, they were leading the nation of Israel into Baal worship. And this is full on Baal worship. We're talking idols, altars, temples. We're talking the whole works. And if you look at 1 Kings chapter 16, I know I said 17, go back one chapter. Look right at verse 33 or so. It says, Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings before him. Now just let that settle in on you. Ahab did more to arouse God's anger than all the other kings. And if you've read the book of 1 Kings, that's saying something. So this is them. So this, this is the environment today. This is, this is the atmosphere So you have Ahab and Jezebel who are awful people, leading God's people into awful things, and God is awfully angry. And God wants Elijah to deliver an awfully powerful message to this horrible king. Now look at chapter 17, verse one, and we're going to move fairly quickly, and I'm gonna summarize some large portions of scripture for you, but I hope that you'll go back and read it on your own. But it says this in 1 Kings 17, verse one. Now Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my Word. Okay, so this is the introduction of Elijah. He's coming onto the scene, and he's got a very strong message for the king. Not a lot of these prophets didn't survive the delivery of these messages, okay? So here he goes, you, you've got a problem, Ahab, and God's not gonna send any rain until I say so. Now, the Bible doesn't say right here, but later on, it gives us a little bit of a description of what Elijah looks like. He dressed up in, in animal hair, all right? and he wore a leather belt. He's got a different appearance than most people. He's got a little bit of this John the Baptist look to him. I I think people's heads turns when he walks. I I think Elijah, this is just me summarizing, I think he's an outdoor cat (laughs) that came indoors to talk to the king. Okay, that's my impression here of Elijah. And he's like, Ahab, you got a problem 
It's not going to rain again till I say so. Now, if you remember back in our study of Genesis, especially around Joseph, if it stops raining, that's a problem, isn't it? We got a real problem. This is big trouble. And uh, so he said, and, and I'm not, it's not going to happen again until it comes out of my mouth that it will. And then after that, um, uh, God told Elijah, I want you to go hide in the Kirith Ravine, and that's where Ahab can't find you. Can you imagine if Ahab could have found him? I'm going to tie you up, and I'm going to make you say the rain is going to come. I mean, so he had to get out of there. And this is where, um, if you're familiar with this part of the Old Testament, this is where Elijah is hiding, and there's a little brook of water there, and God sends him food twice a day using, remember what animal? Ravens. This is where he feeds him with with ravens. What an incredible display of God's provision. It's awesome. And then after a while, that brook dried up. Remember, it's not raining anywhere, so the, the brook dried up, and God's like, okay, now I want you to go, and he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna provide shelter for you with this widow and her son. So he tells her where to go, and he meets this widow, and he, you remember what he says to the widow? Hey, will you bake me some bread and water? And she's like, I- I'd like to, but I only have enough flour and oil for one more loaf, and my son and I are gonna eat it, and then we're gonna die. This is how desperate the situation was. And, and Elijah was like, no, don't worry about that. Just go ahead and do it. It's going to be fine. If you look at chapter 17, verse 14, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And so she did it. And that's exactly what happened. She never ran out of flour. She never ran out of oil. And she was able to provide food for her and her son and Elijah throughout this whole ordeal. If you keep reading, sometime later that widow's son passes away and Elijah cries out to God in prayer. 1 Kings 17 verse 22, the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and and said, look, your son is alive. That is absolutely remarkable. I mean, we all gotta nod our head. This is remarkable. In a short amount of time, Elijah delivers this very hard message to the king, and then God keeps him safe. He feeds him by airmail twice a day from ravens. He provides shelter with a widow, miraculously provides flour and oil every day for food, and then he raises her son from the dead. What powerful displays of what God can do in the scriptures. Well, fast forward just a little bit. We're now in the third year of the drought. And the Lord says to Elijah, I want you to go present yourself to Ahab again. Hadn't seen each other in in three years. And look at verse 17 of chapter 18 now. We're advancing the story some. Chapter 18, verse 17. When he saw Elijah, this is King Ahab. He's like, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And I love Elijah's response. I have not made trouble for Israel. But you have, you know, you and your father, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Azra who eat at Jezebel's table. And I'll tell you, what happens next? Oh my goodness, you need to read it. If you've never read it, go back and read it. Elijah is gonna challenge these 450 prophets of Baal to set up an altar and to make a sacrifice to Baal. And the kicker is, you can't light it. 
Baal has to light it. And then Elijah's like, I'll do the same. I'll build an altar and I'll call upon the Lord, the true God, to light it. And whosoever God lights the fire, that will be the true God. We're gonna settle this thing once and for all. When you read this on your own, you're gonna, it's gonna feel like an old Western, to be honest with you. Elijah's the good guy, the cowboy in the white hat, and the prophets of Baal are the bad guys in the black hat, and Elijah's like, meet me at high noon behind the saloon for a duel, and we're gonna settle this once and for all. This is that, it very much feels like, like this moment. And I do believe that in Elijah's, in Elijah's mind, I think he thought, this ends today. And I say that because of what happens later, but I think that's what he thought was gonna happen. Read all the details. You're gonna see that the prophets of Baal, they do everything they can to, to light this, to get Baal to light this fire. They pray, they cry, they weep. They even go so far, they cut themselves and Baal doesn't respond. And of course, Baal doesn't respond. Why? Because Baal is a made up entity that is only made up in the imagination of people's minds. And Elijah knows this. And, and, and you're gonna like Elijah in this part of the story because he's just like, where's your God? Well, is he napping? Um, is, is he going to the bathroom? Where is he? You know, and he mocks them all day. And then it's Elijah's turn. And boy, does God show up big. Elijah prayed and, and the Lord set fire to this altar that Elijah, just, just to prove a point, he had it drenched with water. And when you read the example, it seems like fire falls down from heaven this is a dramatic display. This isn't just a little flame begins to flicker and it smolders and it just kind of slowly, no, 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 no. This seems like fire fell from heaven and just consumed it all. This was very visual. And if you look at chapter 18, verse 39, when the people saw this, so everybody there saw it, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. How many were there? 450. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley, and he slaughtered them there, and slaughtered there. And then after this, Elijah announced the drought is over, and it started to rain again. Now that's a very quick synopsis of what took over three years to unfold. Elijah announcing this drought to the king, God hiding him and providing for him with ravens, sheltering him with the widow and her son, never-ending flour and oil, raising the widow's son from the dead, a victorious showdown with 450 prophets of Baal, and then announcing that it will rain again, and it rains again. You would think that with everything that we've read over the last couple of chapters, Elijah would be feeling, what words would we use? Invincible? And if he didn't feel invincible, maybe feeling a little untouchable? I mean, what words would we, would we put in there? Because from an outside perspective, Elijah should be one of the most confident men you're ever gonna come across in the Bible. But we'd be dead wrong. Absolutely dead wrong. You see, Instead of King Ahab falling on his face with all the people and crying out to God for uh, in repentance and forgiveness and, and, and turning around and tearing down all the, 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 the altars and temples to, to Baal, instead of after this miraculous display of God's power, you would think that Ahab would be, be motivated among everybody to change course and command the people to return to God. But that's not what he does. 
The Bible says that he runs home and talks to his wife, Jezebel. And he tells her all about what happened and how Elijah slaughtered the 450 prophets of Baal. If you go to chapter 19, verse 2, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like that of one of them. In other words, I'll slaughter you just like you did my prophets. And then in verse three, what does it say? Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, I find it strange. And again, this is just me from all this distance of time and context. I find it strange that Elijah would face down 450 prophets of Baal. And don't forget the 400 prophets of Asra. So you have 850 prophets. I find it strange that he could stare them down and not seem to be afraid at all. Even could mock them and joke or whatever. But the queen makes one verbal threat through a messenger and he runs for his life. Now, I wanna be very, I wasn't there, you weren't there. What we have is what the Bible tells us and you can read it just as easily as I can. But it would appear to me anyway that Elijah goes straight from the mountaintop of victory, both figuratively and literally, to the valley of despair in a very short amount of time. From great boldness to intense panic. From incredible faith in God to tremendous fear of what comes next. All of this in a, in a very short amount of time and he runs away in fear and this is where I believe he botched. This is where I believe was his botch. Look at verse three again. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. And when it says that he ran away, he ran from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. He ran as far away as he could. And by what I can tell, it was about 100 miles away. And in that day, it says, give me as far away from her as possible. This is, this is what he did. Elijah's story, this little freeze frame of, a, of Elijah's life, reminds me of another prophet who ran away from what the Lord told him to do. Do you remember that prophet's name? Jonah. There, there is a similarity between Jonah and Elijah on the, in this and I'm, I'm gonna say it very clear, a freeze frame of his life. This wasn't an indicator of his whole life. This was a freeze frame of his life. And he was like, like Jonah. God told Jonah, you are to go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, no way, I'm not gonna do that. And he goes in the opposite direction. Elijah is going in the opposite direction, away from danger. He's getting out of there. And in that regard, both men share a similarity together. So Elijah gets out in the wilderness and he tells God, I have had enough of this. And I wonder how many of us, when it comes to our walk with the Lord or what the Lord has called us to do, have ever reached that moment. I've had enough of this. I don't wanna do this anymore. I can't take it anymore. There's a lot of things that would lead us to that conclusion, but I'm out. You know, I, I run in a lot of circles with ministers. I know a lot of ministers who have reached that conclusion. I am tired of this. They're not abandoning their belief in God, but it's like, this is hard. I want out. 
And we can all experience those things in all different kinds of walks of our, of our Christian life. I've served God faithfully, but I'm done with this and I, I'm ready to get out. But Elijah takes it even one step further than a lot of people. He's like, I'm now ready for my life to be over. I'm so done, Lord, just take my life. And, and then he compares himself with his ancestors, like, I'm, I'm a failure. I'm no better. How could things switch so quickly in this great prophet's life? I mean, the discrepancy between the faith that he displayed on top of Mount Carmel and now out in the desert under this bush, it couldn't be greater. So lots of Bible scholars, lots of experts, uh, lots of people that I respect um, have tried to weigh in and try to figure out psychologically what is happening with Elijah in this moment of the Bible. And many of them will say, this is a typical, this is a, a, a standard case of burnout. This is, this is a man who's burnout serving the Lord. And, and others have said that, uh, no, this is, this is more of a man who is physically exhausted. And others will say, no, no, this is a classic case of somebody who's depressed. He's dealing with depression and, and is not exactly sure how to get out from under it. And you know, honestly, I think all that's probably true to some degree. I, I, I think so. I, I think through each one of those assessments. Um, I think I'd be a little burnt out after this intense way of serving after three years. I think I would be. Um, I'd be physically exhausted after a mountaintop experience like Mount Carmel and then running 100 miles away from my life. I think I'd be physically exhausted too. I'd probably be dealing with some depression I mean, 450 people, 450 prophets of Baal were struck down at, at Elijah's command. You, you don't think that weighs on a man? It would weigh on me. On top of that, I believe this was Elijah's, this is our, this is our moment where we're gonna take back the nation. And it certainly doesn't seem like the king had a change of heart. And the people follow the king most of the time. And I don't think the people of God were really responding like Elijah thought they should. And, and so, yeah, I think he's probably got some depression. What, have been, what has the last three years been all about then, God? So, uh, yeah, I would say I think there's some good assessment here. Burnout, probably. Physically exhausted, I would be. Some depression, I... I'd probably be too. But I don't think that was his botch. I believe Elijah botched, it was, can be simply stated this way. He lost his courage and he took his eye off the ball. And that's his botch. And that makes him very human, doesn't it? That makes him a lot like you and me, doesn't it? I think he lost his courage and he took his eye off the ball. God never told Elijah to run away. Do you read that anywhere in scripture? And, and so what we do read in scripture is that this is a man who for three years did not make a move in his life without hearing and obeying the Lord's instructions. But now he is running ahead of God in order to save his own life. And, and, and he lost his courage, and, and he steps outside of God's will. 
And friends, let me tell you something. When we get outside of God's will, for whatever reason, we lose our courage or, or whatever, when we get outside of God's will, we are liable to do all sorts of crazy and foolish things. Can somebody say amen in there somewhere? When we get outside of God's will, we can do some crazy and foolish things. And I wonder, and again, I choose my words carefully. I wonder if there aren't any of us here today that aren't really all that different than this great prophet of God. Have you ever taken your eye off the ball before? Spiritually speaking. Have you ever lost your courage before in front of the Lord? And maybe you're dabbling in right now or you're reeling from the consequences of some crazy and foolish things in your life that followed you taking your eye off of the Lord and taking your eye off the ball. So I think that's what happened with Elijah. He had this momentary season in his life that he lost his courage, he took his eye off the ball and he, and he succumbed to some earthly type fear and he ran away and now the end result of that is he's kind of dealing with the other end of that where he's out in the desert under a bush wanting to die. Now this is a very extreme example and I hope we, we understand this. But spiritually speaking, when we take our eye off what the Lord wants, we lose courage, we run away from what the Lord is calling us to do, we can absolutely land in some bizarre situations and we go, how did I get here? I, I see a similarity between Elijah's story and th this part of Elijah's story and that of another incredible man of God in the New Testament. And that other man I'm talking about is, his name's Peter. He was one of Jesus' friends. And, and the, the, the moment I'm talking, I'm talking about two freeze frames. I'm talking about a freeze frame in Elijah's life. I'm talking about a freeze frame in Peter's life. They didn't completely identify this is not who they are ultimately, but this is moments of botching. Here you have Peter in the New Testament. You might recall the night. It's a stormy night, and the disciples are out on the water, and they're worried about it, and here comes Jesus walking out on the water. This is Matthew chapter 14. And they see Jesus, and they're like, it's a ghost. And Jesus like, it is not a ghost. He said, it is I, take courage. That's what Jesus said. And then Peter, if you know the story well, Peter said, if that's you, Jesus, then you tell me to get out of this boat and walk to you. And Jesus like, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and you can just imagine the scene, the stormy sea, winds and waves, and here's Peter walking out to Jesus. And then what happens? He starts to see the waves and he starts to feel the wind and the howl of the wind and and he was afraid. Instead of staying focused right on Jesus and the goal at hand and where he's going, he begins to see all the, the, the stuff around him and he begins to sink and he cries out to God and, and Jesus rescued him and Jesus just said these little words, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And this happened too just a few hours after Peter's mountaintop experience, so to speak. Do you recall what was going on right before they set out in the boat that night? Jesus had just fed 5,000 people just a few hours before this. So Peter and the other disciples, they got to watch bread multiply out of thin air and it was this incredible moment with all these thousands of people and you know, they're rowing across the water probably going, Jesus is awesome, the Lord is good and we're all full, got bellies because God is good. And, and, and then this mountaintop experience followed by a moment of botch. I see a lot of similarities there. Spiritual high followed by lack of courage. Elijah and Peter are two of the greatest men of God that you're ever gonna come across in the Bible. But they were humans too.
they're humans who don't always make the right decisions. They're humans, God's guys, but they still took their eye off the ball and they lack courage. And no, we're not talking today about some rated R sin like we did with David last week. We're talking about something that's deeply spiritual, that is oftentimes subtle, it's internal, and it's private. We're talking about a spiritual botch. And man, thank the good Lord that just like other botches, this can be a very temporary one. Thank the good Lord. Elijah sits down under this tree. He says, I had enough. I, I, wanna, I wanna die. And I want you to see what comes next. God is gonna take this prophet who took his eye off the ball and was lacking some real courage and ran away. And I want you to see how none of that matters. God still cared for him all the same, just like he always had done. Look at chapter 19, verse five. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. Now listen, Elijah didn't build that fire and that's not his jug of water. And he just wakes up and there's, there's bread and water, warm bread and water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. And there's a lot of, a lot of things we could talk about there. This is very much God saying, oh, ho, ho, I am so not done with you. Oh, we're, our, we're far from over of what we have to do together. The Bible doesn't say this, but I wonder if the thought crossed Elijah's mind while he was eating that warm, hot bread that the Lord had provided for him. I wonder if his mind went back to those moments while he was sitting by that little brook when all this started and the ravens came and fed him. I wonder if his mind went back there. I wonder if he went back and was thinking about uh, back when he was with the widow and her son and how the flour and the oil never ran out. Every day they had bread and they knew it came from the Lord. And here, right now, even after he was afraid. After he took his eye off the ball, God still is like, I'm here with you. I've not gone anywhere. I'll provide. And you know what? That should be a reminder to us that even if right now you are in a season of doubt or fear or exhaustion or depression or frustration or anger or confusion, or even if you have stepped outside of God's will and have done the exact opposite of what you know he would want for you to do. And right now, you're in a heap of mess and you're trying to figure it out. He still loves you. He still cares for you. He's not giving up on his kids. Now, there could very possibly need to be, in your future, some face in the ground before the Lord, repentance before your maker, but he's definitely not gonna give up on you. So after some rest and some nourishment, Elijah travels, and he can only do that because the Lord provided the nourishment for him. He takes shelter in a cave 40 days later after he's been traveling, and he's had time to think about all that has happened. You look at chapter 19, verse nine. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah's had some time to think. 40 days is a good long while to be alone and to think. And what drove his actions and contemplates some things. And he tells God this. His, I don't know if we have the whole conversation or not, but he starts with saying, I have done this. Me. I don't know if there's more of the conversation, but if there was, I would imagine it was more the same. I did this, and I did this. You told me to do this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and now I am the only one left. Elijah kind of sounds, at least this is me kind of reading in this a little bit, he kind of sounds like everything's riding on me, God, don't, don't you know this? And it's easy to feel that way too when it feels like that we are carrying the weight of the world on our own shoulders. But look what God does as a reminder and a demonstration of who really has got the whole world on his shoulders. And what we're gonna read next sounds terrifying to me. I'll just be honest with you. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Why did God do this? Because it absolutely sounds terrifying to me. This is my assessment. I believe God's like, Elijah, it's time for you to get your focus right back on me. You need to get your focus back on me and off of you. Back on God and off of Elijah who feels like this is all on him. And Elijah saw in this moment a God who commands everything in this world. Everything is obedient to God. He said, look how I control the wind and the earth, and the fire. What in the world could Elijah be afraid of more than a fear of a holy God? And he's just given this great demonstration. But after this awesome and terrifying display, then God whispers. And it's the whisper, it's the quiet whisper that Elijah heard. And to me, this reminds me that God can show up in big ways, God can show up in small ways, this is God's way, I think, of telling Elijah, it's time to get back to work. H have you had your downtime? I'm not done. We're not done. We're on a mission. Get up. Let's go. And they said, just so you know, you're not the only one left. And look at verse 18. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Now get up. Let's go to work. You know, Elijah is a complex guy and in many ways just no different than us. He served the Lord in powerful ways, but he still experienced this season of, of, of lack of courage where he took his eye off the ball. But friends, hear me, this failure is not fatal. It was not fatal to Elijah. God was not done with him. God needed to refresh his prophet and refocus this prophet's point of view. And I think sometimes the Lord needs to do that very thing with us. 
When we're discouraged, when our eyes off the ball, we're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm ready to give up. I'm tired of serving you, Lord. Get me out of here. I'm too afraid. The job's too hard. The world's too ugly. They're all against us. What, all these, I think maybe, maybe this is the answer. If you're feeling that way, do you need to be refreshed? Do you need a season in your life to be still and quiet, to have the word of God before you and to listen to the gentle whisper of the Lord? You may have botched things up really good in your life or you've lacked courage, you've taken your eye off the ball. Now is a season like Elijah had. I just need to refresh a little bit. Let me get my energy back. Let me get my legs back underneath me and let's go to work again because I have not messed up so badly that God is done with me. Let's go. Do you need the same kind of refreshing? Maybe it's time for a little bit of a refocus of your point of view. Do you find yourself saying, I, me, I'm doing all this, no one's helping me, I've got the, maybe we need to shift that language just a little bit, like God helped Elijah shift it. Maybe we don't say, look what I can do, or look what I have to do. Why don't we start saying things like this, look what the Lord can do. Look what the Lord is capable of doing. Remember, we have a God who controls the wind, the earth, and the fire, and it's not just a song or a band. It's, it's the whole thing. He controls it all. It's not about what I can do. It's not about what anybody. It's about what God can do. So maybe after this time of refreshing, it's time to get a little bit of a refocus and get back up on that horse and start riding it again. Because if one of the greatest prophets in the Bible can botch, then no doubt we can too. And it doesn't have to be fatal. You just need to be refreshed and refocused and get back after it. Don't stay down. We have a God who's a God of redemption. We, God loves a good comeback story. And if you're on your back right now, brush yourself off. Get up. It ain't over. Not by a long shot. Let me pray for you because I am over on time. But let me, let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your holy word. I thank you, Lord, for this powerful example of Elijah. Lord, I pray I've explained it well. Haven't left out any details. Or, but I, I just pray, God, that you help us see that, that we're not perfect people. We get discouraged. We can take our eye off the ball too, but you're not done with us. And Lord, I pray as you've shown Elijah, you showed him that you're right there with him. You've never left his side, Lord. Maybe some of us just need to be that, have that reminder too. Lord, if there's any of us that need to just get down on our face before you and cry out to you in repentance, I'm sorry, Lord, I was afraid. I'm sorry, Lord, I ran away. I'm sorry, Lord, I knew what you had me to do and I, I failed, I backed out of it. I don't wanna be that way, Lord, it's not about me, it's about what you're doing. And Lord, you're such a big, powerful God. Who do I have to fear except that of a holy God, which is you? So Lord, I pray for anybody in our church family that's just in a season of discouragement, frustration, doubt, lack of courage. On their backside, Lord, I pray that today will be the first day we start to get back up again. Because you're not done with any of us, Lord. And as long as we have air in our lungs, you've got a purpose for us. So Lord, we thank you for all you've done. Thank you, God, most for your son, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us on the cross. Lord, gave us the ability to be in your family. Lord, gave us the strength and endurance powered by the Holy Spirit to get back up again. So Lord, we give you praise for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.